Detroit Today on 101.9 WBET. I'm Stephen Henderson. As always, I'm really glad that you have joined us. In June 2016 on this show, I had a really fascinating conversation with McGill University presidential historian Gil Troy about the eerie similarities between then-candidate Donald Trump and President Zachary Taylor. Troy had just written a piece for Politico on the topic titled, How an Outsider President Killed a Party. Now, after almost a full term of Donald Trump in the White House, we wanted to see how Troy thought those comparisons held up and the ways the two men, separated by more than a century and their circumstances, have turned out to be different. Gil Troy, welcome to Detroit Today. Great to be with you. Uh, Let's start here. Remind listeners of what you wrote back in 2016 and about the similarities between President Zachary Taylor and then-candidate Donald Trump. So it's June 2016, and people are in shock because um, even Trump supporters, and we now know from many of the memoirs that even on Election Day, uh, Trump and his family didn't fully believe the nomination was going to occur, let alone the election. And uh, I start thinking about, and everybody saying, oh, this has never happened before. And, you know, we've overused that word unprecedented uh, since Donald Trump came on the scene. And I started thinking about Zachary Taylor because he, too, was inexperienced, unqualified, loudish, wealthy, an outsider who, in a sense, took over a party where he was actually not, not only not well-known, but not fully trusted because people didn't... Um, really have a sense of where his party loyalties lay. And the um, the piece indeed was called How an Outsider President Killed a Party. And the, um, the, the, the subhead was the Whigs chose power over principle when they nominated Zachary Taylor in 1848. The party never recovered. And, you know, sometimes when you do a historical analogy, you've got to work really, really hard to shove the <laughs> square peg in the round hole. This, it just sort of flowed. The, the connections, uh, Zachary Taylor had a tendency to compare himself to the greatest president ever, uh, George Washington. Uh, Zachary Taylor was detested by insiders. Uh, we have the phenomenon among in the Republican Party of never-Trumpers. Uh, in the Whig Party, they called themselves conscience Whigs, and, and on and on and on. So it was kind of a fun piece to, to, to write. Mm-hmm. And uh, indeed, you not only were kind enough to pay attention to it, but um, I, I think it got over 50,000 uh, forwards, because uh, there was something about that that said, wow, um, there's something here. And it was a warning to the GOP that, be careful, you know, you can sometimes win a presidential election, but not only lose your soul, but lose your future. Yeah, yeah. So you say that two paragraphs from the article give you chills as you reread them now. You wrote, quote, resisting pressure to run as an independent, but refusing to stump for Taylor, Henry Clay exclaimed, I fear that the Whig Party is dissolved and that no longer are there Whig principles to excite zeal and stimulate exertion. Uh, a New York Whig claiming the convention, quote, committed the double crime of suicide and parricide mourned. The Whig Party as such is dead. The very name will be abandoned should Taylor be elected for the Taylor Party. <clears throat> and you wrote, quote, most dispiriting Taylor, who made no pledges and had no principles, gave rank-and-file Whig voters nothing to champion while alienating many of the most committed loyalists. In The Rise and Fall of the American Whig Party, the historian Michael Holt notes that Taylor's victory triggered an internal struggle for the soul 
of the Whig Party. Was it more committed to seizing power or upholding principle? Underlying that debate was also a deeper question, still pressing today, about the role of fame, popularity, celebrity in presidential campaigning, and American political leadership. Talk about how you think these facts four years after you wrote them down uh, look and how Trump's presidency further reinforces their relevance. So first, just to uh, contextualize, um, this, of course, is the 1848 election, mm-hmm. and Zachary Taylor um, is an unknown, but what what got him ahead, not uh, kind of celebrity uh, hanging out with uh, famous people and not business, but the Mexican-American War. Mm-hmm. And so... Uh, that's that's the way in, especially uh, in the 19th century, to bypass um, the the usual political uh, conventions and, and 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 protocols, and um, and 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 he's an American war hero, uh, and and that makes him that's what propels him into the public eye. Yeah. And um, Henry Clay is the stalwart. He is the Jeb Bush, if you will, of the Republican Party, of the Whig Party at the time. He's someone who's just been so much a part of the party. And he says, where are the Whig principles? Um, and uh, when they say the convention committed the double crime of suicide and parricide, the Whig Party, such as dead, the very name will be a part abandoned should Taylor be elected for the Taylor Party. I mean, <laughs> Donald Trump has spent a career putting his golden T um, and his big T-R-U-M-P on so many uh, iconic buildings, on creating iconic buildings. And now in many ways it does seem that he has put that big golden T and the name T-R-U-M-P on the Republican Party. Mm. And um, I was obviously conscious when I was writing that paragraph of Trump's monumentalism, let's call it, his ability to kind of uh, to, 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 to brand, um, to burn his brand on so many different things. And that kind of game of uh, a slight prediction uh, indeed has seemed to have uh, come true, especially as we've seen not just the never-Trumpers, not just the Republicans who have a certain sense of the ideology of the Republican Party, be it a kind of neoconservatism or free tradeism, uh, saying, wait a minute, where is our party gone? Mm-hmm. But we've seen during this incredible merry-go-round of, uh, of presidential appointees in the White House, uh, Trump just run through so many Republican stalwarts. And uh, obviously, I didn't predict that in the article, but, but there is this certain sense of the, the disconnect between the Trumpian party and the Republican party as it was. And, um, and the phrase that the historian Michael Holt uses, that it triggered an internal struggle for the soul of the Whig party. Yeah. It seems that every single day, um, we in, we look and we see that the Republican Party is having this bout, this this tug of war, this shouting match. Uh, who are we? What do we stand for? And it gets, of course, to a deeper question about what is a political party? Is the political party simply this set of institutional ties, uh, money raising abilities, and a couple of principles that get taken over every four years by some kind of outsider? Uh, who becomes the nominee, or is there something more organic to the the, the political party? And this is a question for the Democrats too. Um, is it really Biden's party, or is it the Democratic Party? Is right. it really Trump's party, or is it the Republican Party? And um, I, I'm not foolish enough to try to predict where the Republican Party will go, but uh, certainly the tensions and the confusion, and frankly the despair among many Republicans is certainly there, even while there also is a certain kind of zeal and enthusiasm and commitment to our guy, 
because they're convinced that he brought them into power four years ago and that he will bring them into power uh, for another four years. Yeah, yeah. Uh, This struggle for the control of the Republican Party as you point out, is is really playing out in dramatic fashion four years after Trump was uh, elected. And one difference between now and when Zachary Taylor was elected as a Whig is that, uh, you know, Trump survived the first four years and is running for re-election, uh, which, which reposes the question uh, and, and in a different context because you've got four years of a record behind him. Zachary Taylor didn't live uh, his first full term. So, so is there a better outcome? I suppose that that seems possible for the Republicans because uh, this person who has kind of swept up the entire party into his persona uh, is still there and still able to make the case to voters that uh, that he's the better choice uh, on, on on the ballot. Does does that somehow pretend better? for the Republicans than it did perhaps for the Whigs. So, so first, indeed, not only did uh, Zachary Taylor die by 1850, and he was you know, elected in 1848, but mm-hmm. uh, entered into office in 1849, uh, some say um, by poisoned uh, cherries, but there's actually no proof of that. It's just one of the colorful stories people say, basically <laughs> died of dysentery, rather ugly, um, uh, diarrhea-filled death. Uh, but... Um, Indeed, so there is this. So that's one change, and the and the second contrast we should emphasize is that it's 1848, 1849, 1850. They don't know it yet, but they feel it that they're ten years away from civil war. That the the slavery issue, the division between North and South, is so intense, and that's one of the things that really destroys the uh, Whig Party. And actually, the, the the slavery issue is this kind of one issue wrecking ball that destroys churches and destroys universities and destroys reputations um, and keeps on wrecking, wrecking, wrecking things until, as we all know, over 800,000 Americans die in the fight for union slash um, the fight against slavery, the fight uh, from the Confederate side for slavery and for states' rights. So um, we desperately hope that those are uh, two very uh, big differences. But indeed, to get to the core of your question, um, Trump has very successfully put his brand on that party, and the fact that he um, not only has, has survived but uh, was nominated uh, again in a, in a cakewalk um, shows that there's enough strength in the the Trump party uh, for uh, it to continue. And certainly, if he wins, and I'm not predicting, <laughs> uh, all I'm going to predict is that there will be an election on, on election day. I'm not predicting what happens, but. If he wins, uh, and and he, and he lasts the, the the next four years, then he will very much have put uh, not just his brand temporarily on the party as an outsider, but really in a very profound way. In the same way that kind of Ronald Reagan uh, was able to reconstitute the innards of the Republican Party, but George W. Bush didn't. I think it'll be it's a, it's a pretty easy prediction to say that if Donald Trump survives eight years as president, he will have fundamentally changed the Republican Party. Mm. Will he have destroyed it? Again, open question. If Trump loses um, in November, uh, then I think there really will be a Republican bloodletting. And then there really will be this kind of accounting, kind of what happened with the Whigs, where they said, who are we? Where are we going? What price do we pay? Now, 
that often happens when you lose the presidential election campaign. Uh, and it actually can be a very helpful process. Um, in 1976, when the Republicans uh, lost, uh, when Gerald Ford uh, lost the presidency to Jimmy Carter, they went through a whole re figuring uh, reconfiguration and, and, and the thought process that ultimately led to Reagan's victory and, and 12 years of uh, first Reagan and then George H.W. Bush. Um, the Democrats in 1980, after they lost to Ronald Reagan, had a similar uh, process where it necessarily didn't lead to victory on the presidential level, but did lead them to shore up their um, their, their base and, uh, and, and their congressional strength. So that kind of Questioning can be helpful sometimes in the wake of a loss. My sense, given the ugliness of the politics that we're seeing right now, is that it will not be a pretty fight, and that if, uh, if indeed Donald Trump loses uh, in November, the Republican Party will be in serious, serious trouble. Hmm. We're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we'll continue our conversation with Gil Troy about the comparison between Donald Trump and President Zachary Taylor. Stay where you are. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. This is Detroit Today. I'm Stephen Henderson, and my guest is Gil Troy, a professor and distinguished scholar of North American history at McGill University. He wrote a piece in Politico in 2016 that compared then-candidate Donald Trump to President Zachary Taylor, titled How an Outsider President Killed a Party. I, I, I want to talk a, a little about the minority status of the Republican Party right now. Uh, it's a party that has not won a a popular uh, uh, vote for president except one time in uh, the year 2004, a war election, uh, since 1988. Uh, its last two presidents, in fact, gained the office by winning a minority of votes. The Senate majority that it enjoys today uh, is composed of a minority of American voters uh, is there a, a, an inherent danger in that status, even though Trump projects this this image of strength, and and certainly uh, he and the Senate majority have wielded a lot of of power? Uh, the, the fact that it derives from a minority of American voters and American citizens uh, seems to to court a backlash that could not just destroy the party, but maybe destroy the kinds of provisions in our system of government that protect minorities from tyrannical uh, majorities. This idea of this, uh, this tyrannical minority uh, sort of doing itself in by overreaching. Uh, what do you make of that? It's an interesting question. So first, let me take a sidebar before I get to it, which is that um, if you had asked me that question four years ago, mm -hmm. um, one of the things I would have pointed out was that under the uh, Barack Obama administration, the Republicans had a remarkable series of gains, which were often under the radar screen in state legislatures, yes. in the gubernatorial races, and something that just didn't play out in the narrative. So I just want to point out you know, how, how different uh, the conversation is four years later. Mm -hmm. But indeed, uh, we are seeing a situation where not only uh, as you point out, have the Republicans failed to win a clean majority um, 
for the presidency, except for in 2004, which was not only a war election, but also George W. Bush running for re-election. Um, but also, uh, look at Trump's presidency. He is consistently polled below 50 percent. Mm-hmm. Um, and in, in, in the polls, he's actually been more so than many other presidents, George W. Bush, uh, Jimmy Carter, Richard Nixon. They went up and down. They could go as low as 20 percent and go as high as 60 percent. Even Ronald Reagan had his ups and downs with Bill Clinton. Uh, Trump's uh, support has been remarkably consistent, but, but consistently under the bar. And, uh, and, and that's one piece of it. And the second piece of it, uh, and again, I don't like to use that word unprecedented, but one of the many unprecedented things about the Trump administration and the Trump presidency is that most presidents, and certainly all our modern presidents, have really tried to be the president of the American people. Uh, George W. Bush and Ronald Reagan from the right. Ronald Reagan was always telling his buddies, look, I'm not the president of the conservative party. I'm not the president of the Republican Party. I'm the president of the United States of America. Uh, Bill Clinton and Barack Obama from the left. I'm being uh, purposely nonpartisan here. And Donald Trump has been very clear that he is the president of Red America. He is the president of the people who voted for him. He is the president of his supporters. Mm-hmm. And, um, and that's a very, very different dynamic, and that has the potential to be toxic. So now to get to the essence of your question, to be a nerdy political historian, mm-hmm. in constitutional terms, mm-hmm. having that kind of minority power, having that kind of minority ballast isn't a problem, theoretically, because we are a republic, not a pure democracy. Right. And the founding fathers built the system in order to, they're well aware of the fact that it was a very diverse country with lots of different interests, and they wanted the ship to be able to be righted in many different ways and for many different pockets of power to emerge, and they weren't troubled. In fact, back in those days, because of you know limited transportation and communication, they had a very hard time conceiving of the kind of national conversation and national majorities that we're so used to. And that's part of the reason why they built that system that way, so that you could have these pockets and so that wouldn't trouble them. That's theory. Mm-hmm. The reality is that in the 21st century, thanks to the national media, thanks to the internet, thanks to the nationalization of America in so many profound ways, which started with Franklin Roosevelt, continued with presidents like John Kennedy, Ronald Reagan, again, Republicans and Democrats alike, um, we are much more national and much more democratic, lowercase d. And so to consistently have the Electoral College playing that starring role mm-hmm. uh, that is played, and I'm putting starring in quotation marks, in, <laughs> in so many recent elections, to increasingly have this minority party be functioning as the majority creates a toxicity, and it's one dimension of the legitimacy crisis. It breaks my heart to say uh, we're playing out right now. And... Um, you know, again, I don't like to overuse the word unprecedented. And I, you know, in the 1970s, we had a, we had a, a, a legitimacy crisis. In the 1930s, in many ways, we had a legitimacy crisis. In the 1890s, we had a legitimacy crisis. So American historians are well aware of the fact that the fact that there's a lack of faith in, in the country, there's a lack of goodwill uh, in many moments, that there's a polarization is not new. Um, but that doesn't mean that it's not fraught, and it's not scary. And it doesn't mean that if the GOP consistently continues to amass power without that democratic, lowercase d, uh, majoritarian embrace, that it won't be increasingly toxic, especially given our dynamics uh, of partisanship, national media, nationalization, and um, and, and the kind of national slash universal internet. Well, and I think one of the other concerns, if if you're someone who values uh, the balance that was struck 
in in forming the republic between majoritarian will and minority rights. Uh, you know, the other the other danger is that if Democrats get control of everything, which eventually they will, I mean, it, it always swings back and forth. But if they get control of everything with majoritarian will, they could change the rules. I mean, a lot of these these things that uh, protect uh, minority political interests are 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 you know erasable with a simple act of Congress and the president's signature. Uh, there's already talk, for instance, of radically changing the structure of the Supreme Court. Uh, if if President Trump uh, confirms a, a justice before the election, there's talk of uh, you know changing the electoral college or, uh, or 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 maybe even the makeup of of the Senate, which of course makes it a more bare knuckle uh, political uh, contest. I mean, it 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 makes government. I think uh, much more prone to the kinds of extremes that this Republican minority has has embraced uh, over the last couple of uh, decades. Absolutely, and that's one of the scary things about this moment. That you know, underlying that is a despair and a desperation and a fury and a sense of being squelched and a sense of wait a minute, don't we believe in one person, one vote? And again, this is the 21st century, not the the, the 1700s. We do have a different sensibility. Mm-hmm. We have expanded the notion of all men are created equal to include blacks and whites, to include um, men and women. And um, and 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 we're much more. I know he's not so popular these days, but you know, a Jeffersonian Republican republic than than was initially um, articulated. And so it's very important that we protect democracy. And the constitutional framers themselves understood that. This democracy, this democratic republic, is a fragile flower. And yes, you have all kinds of checks and balances. You have all kinds of beautiful words. You have all kinds of ideas. But ultimately, the legitimacy does come from a certain tone setting. It comes from a certain sense of, 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 of the fragile network of, of ties and of mutual respect. And uh, look, without you know, making trouble, right now we're seeing a complete flip on the Supreme Court conversation, right? When, um, when Obama was in power and he wanted to nominate a, uh, a, a Supreme Court nominee in the last year of, of, of his presidency, it was the Republicans who came up with this novel idea of, oh, no, that's impossible. And the Democrats said, of course it's possible. And now the Democrats and the Republicans each are shamelessly just flipping. When you, when, when you flip your position so shamelessly without really relating to constitutional principle, without really thinking about the other. And it, as you point out, you know, all just sort of like a brutal game of who, who wins the most. You absolutely can use all kinds of levers of power when you do have that majoritarian power, um, to, uh, that majoritarian control to, to really do damage to the republic. And Americans have traditionally been very constitutionally conservative in the best sense of the word, um, meaning unwilling to monkey around with the Constitution when, you know, Franklin Roosevelt in 1936 wants to pack the, uh, 36, 37 wants to pack the Supreme Court, mm-hmm. uh, even though he has just won re-election, the American people basically say, no, mm-hmm. um, it's unacceptable. We don't go from nine to 15 justices just because you're frustrated with the, um, with, with, with the current makeup of the court. Uh, and so uh, I agree with you that, and this again, you can vote for Trump or not vote for Trump. That's not my, my goal today in, in, in the conversation. But the, the bullying, the brutality, the, um, the language that Donald Trump has chosen to use again and again and again, both as a governing tactic and simply because it just comes so naturally um, from his gut, has left 
damage, has done damage and, and, and has left scars on, 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 the, on the body politic, if you will, of the republic. And um, one hopes that whoever wins in November, a renewed Donald Trump, perhaps more, um, I'm not predicting this, but I'm hoping, um, <laughs> perhaps more confident if he wins, or Joe Biden will not say, because this could also happen. I mean, the Democrats, the next time they come into office, and eventually they will, they can either say, okay, well, this is the new, this is the new normal. We're going to be as brutal as, as, as they were. Or they can say, no, we need to rebuild. We need to think about the other. We need to create some kind of sense of we're all in this together. Danielle Allen, African-American political scientist at Harvard, wrote a beautiful article recently in The Atlantic, and she said, choose unity. And she said, I'm quoting George Washington. She said, I'm well aware of the fact that I'm quoting a slave owner, but I'm also well aware of the fact that for a democracy to work, for a democratic republic to work, for this constitutional republic to work, every now and then we have to choose to put our differences aside and choose unity. Mm. And I thought that was a, you know, I wanted to vote for her for president because we're, we're, we're not hearing that enough from our leaders. And instead, what we're hearing is the desperation or the despair, the bullying, um, the, 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 these last couple of years. And we should point out that a lot of this started before Trump and Trump was able to, to exploit it, but now has taken it to a whole other level of, of, of brutality. And again, you can vote for him, but you at least have to acknowledge that that's his governing tactic. Um, has 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 created a has has created and then of course we have things like the internet and 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 the cancel culture on one hand and the, the bullying uh, culture on the other hand um, we have you know from right and left we 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 have problems in this republic and we need leadership and we also need citizenship uh, as two values as two ideals which the framers spent a lot of time talking about and valuing to assert themselves and to say you know what every now and then I'm going to put my interests aside and think about the broader interest, thinking about this novo or, Novus Oris Reclorum, this new world order, uh, think about this great republic, think about this um, extraordinary experiment in democracy called the United States of America. And that was ultimately the hope behind my article, to kind of say, hey, wait a minute, a little bit of wake-up call, let's think about where we're going, let's think about what principles we have, let's think about what a party is. It's a challenge for the Democrats, too. Okay. Gil Troy from McGill University. It was really great to catch up with you again four years later uh, about this Thanks. interesting Thanks. We'll make comparison. a date four years from now. <laughs> yeah, right? That's right. We'll want to talk to you after the election, too. That's right. Okay. Uh, that's, uh, we're going to take a quick break here on Detroit Today, and we'll be back with more. Don't go away. Don't go away. 